Hi there. Welcome back to Pencils Down. On today's episode, I'm excited to be joined by Lowell Rickliffs. Lowell is the managing partner of Traction Advising, a Seattle-based boutique sales and marketing and M&A advising firm that's focused on SaaS businesses. Lowell was a founder and C-suite executive who developed significant operational experience and decided to leverage that experience into Traction Advising. We sat down to discuss his career journey, how he thinks we can better align incentives in an M&A process, advice he'd give a startup CEO considering an exit, and how he differentiates traction advising in a competitive landscape. Quick disclaimer that this interview was recorded prior to COVID-19 hitting the United States. So with that, let's get started. So Lowell, thank you so much for joining us on the Pencil Sound podcast. I appreciate the opportunity. It's great to be here. Absolutely. You know, just to kick things off, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background and your journey that took you to starting Traction M&A. Yeah, kind of a non-traditional approach. I was an electrical engineer with a computer science background before it was cool to be in computer science and started a technical sales career with Rockwell Automation, where I spent the first half of my career culminated as vice president of global sales strategy for a $3 billion group and a Fortune 500 company. And then I managed the software business in North America for the last three years. And then I was a part of three early stage companies. So chief revenue officer for a company in the online market research data collection world, scaled that from 1 million to 50 million, and that was sold to WPP. And then as chief operating officer for a French company called Toluna, that we scaled from 10 million to 120 million, that was sold to a private equity firm. And then I co-founded a healthcare IT company called FlexMinder that was eventually sold to JellyVision in Chicago. And along the way, in building and scaling these companies, we acquired and integrated about a dozen companies, did due diligence on probably 30 or 40. So I became very familiar with the acquisition and integration process. And when it came time to sell the company that I had co-founded based on some of my experience with bankers along the way, and I had a background in enterprise sales, I thought I could do it myself. And I thought there might be a better way to position and sell small technology companies. And we were successful. I ran the process again for one of our investors for another portfolio company. And I recognized that with more and more companies being spun out of shared workspaces instead of traditionally, you know, IBM, Bell Labs, the large R&D pubs, that there were a lot of companies that weren't, you know, quote unquote, home runs. You know, they weren't the billion dollar, you know, or even a hundred million dollar exits, but they were very good businesses that solved very real B2B business processes. And I didn't feel that they were necessarily being well represented by some of the investment banks in the traditional auction process that works well for cash flow positive, high EBIT companies, but they're a little bit harder to sell. It requires positioning of the company, almost like you'd be selling a product to an enterprise, you know, where it's expanded functionality. So that's where the idea for traction advising came about. And that's where it was born, kind of based on a premise. And now almost four years into it, it's proven to be true and a lot of fun. Thank you so much for that background, Lowell. I mean, it's clear that you obviously have approached the industry and the, the advisory lens from having actually been an operator. Share a little bit around how your past experience as an operator in starting these businesses has helped to inform your ability to provide effective advice as a banker. Well, one of the things I learned firsthand, you know, sitting around the table in 
one of my various roles, either wearing the sales hat or chief operations hat or the CEO hat, I understood that number one, no deal gets done without the CEO's approval because at some level they will own it, good or bad. So if they're not involved, the deal won't happen. Also, you know, if there's a corp dev function, they are typically involved, but they don't usually have the budget and they don't own the product. And so you've got all of the senior teams, you've got HR, you've got IT, you've got the product team, you've got finance that all sit around the table. And I've just lived with it. I know the meetings and the discussions and any one of those people, so I'm talking like a strategic buyer now, any one of them raises their hand to say, I think this is a bad deal because of X, Y, and Z. It can kill it. So in the course of running my process, I try to develop a relationship with all of the key decision makers that are involved. And I try to stay current with them so that we can uncover any potential problems early on and deal with them. And if it's a fundamental disconnect, you know, then you want to know early. But almost 99% of the time, I would say it's often a level of misunderstanding. And the later you get in the process, I would say the stronger people's reactions are to any surprises. And it's important to supply more information quickly. I used to joke, it's a little bit like whack-a-mole. I mean, as, as things pop up, you need to take care of them. Otherwise, they'll take on a life of their own and they can kill a deal. So everything from, you know, I've been a co-founder in a company so I can relate to founders and what it's like to raise early money and that sense of obligation, particularly to your early investors that believed in you. You know, I've worked with Corp Dev on the acquisition side, so I know what the discussions are like and the conversations that they have and where they're involved. And at the CEO level and with the board level, you know, getting board approval, you know, kind of what's required. And then actually acquiring companies, I mean, I genuinely, you know, for 15 years looked at why would we buy this company? Like, is the revenue accretive? Is it significant? Does it matter? You know, what would it be at scale? You know, I put multiple P&Ls side by side in a spreadsheet, try to align them and say, well, what would the cost savings be? And what could we sell to the, the company that we acquire, like to their clients? And which of their products could they sell to our client base? And then make some reasonable assumptions as to what that adoption would be over time. And so I use that knowledge to sit down with a potential acquirer and help them do the acquisition side. I find that many of the acquirers don't have a lot of experience buying companies. So I often end up, even though I work for the seller, working closely with the buyer to help build out the plan. Obviously, they've got to test it and they do their own diligence on it. But building out a realistic plan of what these two companies might look like when they're integrated together. The other thing I try to do is I genuinely want these integrations, these acquisitions, integrations to be successful. And I've seen a lot of things that work well, and I've got some scars from some things that haven't worked well. And so I'll try to guide the buyer when they're structuring incentives to make sure that it aligns with what reality might look like post-acquisition, which isn't always what you think it will be pre-acquisition. Yeah, I'm sure you're familiar with that statistic. I think it's something like 85 plus percent of acquisition integrations ultimately don't pan out to meet the expectations of the acquirer. One of the things that I had observed when I was representing folks on the sell side as a deal attorney was that you know the incentives just aren't necessarily aligned for the professional advisor on the sell side to you know really help to set up the acquirer for success. How do you think through those misaligned incentives and really helping the acquirer to make sure that that acquisition is as successful as it can be? Well, it starts with, you know, if there's an earnout component, you know, what is that earnout aligned with? And, you know, the safest thing, you know, if you're trying to get a premium for a company and the buyer is willing to pay the premium, but only if they hit certain milestones, 
you know, the safest thing for the buyer, and I did this as a buyer, is you want to tie it to EBITDA. Like if it's profitable and it generates positive cash flow, then you're happy to pay more for this thing. It's a win-win. It's the safest thing to do. But it's also the most risk for the seller because you don't know how they'll structure things once you're on the other side. And often the buyer doesn't really know until they own it and they get involved. And they may want to do a massive marketing push, you know, or they may want to double the size of the sales team, which very well may be the right thing for the combined business, but it may crush the EBITDA. And then you've got a team that may be highly incented based on this earnout, and they're very unhappy. And that's not good for either side. It's not good for the acquirer to have these core team members very unhappy. Worst case, you know, it can end up in a lawsuit, right, where people feel like it was misrepresented. So. You know, so I think the most logical thing, if there's an earnout component, is to tie it to revenue. It's usually the most trackable and or allow some flexibility in there. Because often once a company is acquired, they may find out the CEO and the COO, they've got a skill set that the acquirer didn't have before. And boy, we'd really like to funnel their talents on some of these other products that need some help. Well, if they've got a significant amount of money, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars tied up in terms that were tied to the deal, that's tied to the acquired company's product, there may be a misalignment. So thinking that through ahead of time, part is thinking through what the skills are, where they might be applied, and how someone might be rewarded for that is helpful. It's never perfect. And then recognizing that if it is misaligned, one of it's just making sure that the acquirer's eyes are open that, oh, this actually might change and we might want them to do something differently, but we can't expect them to work on something that would take time away from what they actually get paid on. So if their eyes are wide open, ideally get the structure set up right initially. And if it's not set up correctly initially, leave it open for discussion so that it aligns best on both sides. Yeah, it makes total sense. And now let's say that you're a CEO of a business that's generating anywhere from five to 25 million, let's say an ARR, and you're thinking about potentially selling the business. What are the right questions to ask in assessing the professional advisor, the investment banker that you want to work with? And also, secondly, when is the right time to start preparing for that exit? That's a great question. I actually would argue that from the moment you found your company, you should think about it. And I say that because there are things like confidentiality and IP ownership. And often when it's, you know, three of you in a house and you're just trying to get a product put together and get your first, you know, $10 in revenue, it's easy to overlook those things. But often those first three founders may not be together seven years later on an exit. And the buyer wants to make sure that, oh, you know, one of those three people actually wrote half the code in the core and then left after three years and didn't sign an IP agreement for six months. Well, that's not insurmountable, but that's potentially a big deal, particularly if that founder didn't leave on great terms. So you want to make sure that you've got a lot of these things that are clean from the beginning. I would say certainly, I think one to two years before you sell, you want to get grounded on what buyers really care about. I find I do a lot of work. I spend about a fourth of my time working with startups just because I enjoy it. And there's a lot of anecdotal information out there that isn't necessarily false, but it doesn't really apply to them. You know, they'll see Qualtrics being purchased by SAP for 20 times, and they think that that might apply to them. And you know what? Maybe it will. I can't say that it won't, but I can tell you that I talk to buyers every day, and I know what the vast majority of buyers, what they care about. You know, when they look at logo churn, when they look at net revenue retention, when they look at, you know, the rule of 40, EBIT percentage plus growth percentage. So, and often I think 
companies can align their business model. It's exactly what private equity firms do. If they buy a company, they know what the future buyers will want. And so they will intentionally build the company to be sellable. And I think a lot of founders, if they took some time a year or two before they really wanted to sell and really got an honest, grounded assessment of what buyers will pay for and then try to align their company and their metrics with that, they'll be more successful. It'll be easier to sell a company and they'll get the best possible valuation for it. Yeah, it's so true. And I think, you know, even just reflecting as we were starting our business, you know, it's not necessarily the first thing in your mind. Of course, the song and the dance that you give to every early stage investor is, oh, you know, we're in this for the next 50 years. But that's not necessarily true. And that's just not borne out by the facts. There's many cases where a strategic exit, you know, perhaps earlier in the life cycle of a company makes all the sense in the world. And it's often left out of the conversation around, you know, how you think about building out these businesses. Yeah. The other part of your question there, like, I think I look at this as a perspective. I've got a lot of empathy for founders and what they've gone through to build a business and to sell it. Well, I know one of the things I look for on my side are who the actual person is. It's very taxing. I think most first-time CEOs, first-time exit, I think underestimate how stressful it is. It was for me as well when I went through it. And often you want both for your M&A advisor, you know, your investment banker, as well as your M&A attorney, you want someone whose judgment you trust because you will be in situations that you've not seen before and you're not going to know what the answer is and you'll have multiple choices. And at some point, you're going to want guidance from someone whose judgment you trust. So, you know, there are large banks, there are small M&A advisors. You know, I've got a boutique M&A firm, so it's very hands-on. I'm a senior operating person. I'm hands-on. I'm the person that you primarily talk to. So I've got a team of four that support me. You know, there are other, you know, midsize and larger banks that have armies of people and resources. And some people like having that army of resources available to them, which can be helpful. The downside is often if you're in that five to 25 million ARR, you're probably going to get a junior person that's your day-to-day contact person that is probably going to be very, very smart, but may have limited actual experience and probably have zero operating experience. So they'll run the process. And I don't want to pick on people with a finance background because I have a lot of respect for that. But when I ran companies, I don't think I ever hired a single finance person to run a sales process. I mean, I didn't hire salespeople to run the finance process either. But traditional investment banking, they hire, honestly, I give credit, some of the best and brightest financial minds out there to run a structured sales process. And I think this is different. I think in this range, It's less of running a process and it's really more about selling and positioning your company. So they're just different. And part of it just depends on, you should probably talk to both and decide what you're most comfortable with. And most people will have a strong opinion one way or the other. And so what's your strategy in developing relationships with potential prospects and making sure that you and Traction break through as, you know, undoubtedly that CEO is speaking with other banks? Yeah. So it's been a process. Initially, I'm heavily involved in the startup community. So I've, you know, over the course of 15 years, I know hundreds of early stage companies, but knowing them when they're going through the process of selling their company, people don't sell their companies very often. So staying top of mind is always a challenge. So right now, I mean, a firm amount of marketing efforts and outreach. I'm going to actually send out a newsletter, been delinquent on that starting next week. So we'll probably do that on a regular basis, just Things that I think should be interesting and educational and useful, but to try to stay top of mind. Like I said, I spend about a fourth of my time volunteering with literally hundreds of companies actually around the world. I do a lot of international 
volunteering as well. I do that because I enjoy it, but along the way, I do get to know a lot of different CEOs. I get to know a lot of different businesses, and some of them grow up and they decide they want an exit. Right now, today, I would actually say what keeps me busy because we're relatively small and we really try to limit ourselves to two or three deals at a time. It's mostly from referrals, both from people that have exited, others ask them who they did work with. But ironically, actually, the CEOs of acquiring companies have been a good source of referrals, which I appreciate. You know, I take as a compliment that they'll tell people, I like the way this guy runs a process. You should talk to him. So sounds like many irons in the fire, many different strategies. I was smiling as you were saying, launching a newsletter next week because. I'm often of the mindset that I'm going to be launching my newsletter next week. <laughs> <laughs> well, I finally told one of my folks, I said, look, I know I've asked this before, but I'm telling you right now to force me to do a final audit and send it, or you're going to send it on your own. I said, I'm telling you right now that you have to tell me that. Otherwise, I'll push it off. So I know getting those newsletters out isn't my core strength. So I've got someone whose it is, and I've given her permission to send it. So whether I approve it or not, it's going to go out. I noticed you have a couple of articles on LinkedIn too. How do you guys utilize LinkedIn? I like LinkedIn because that's where the professionals are and you know, network of founders and CEOs. So when I have genuine content, when I actually have something I believe in and feel strongly about and feels useful, I try to put it in print and send it out there. So they're fairly few, but I'd like to think that they're good quality content. So I think the ability to create articles and publish those on LinkedIn is wise. I probably could do more but I do probably one or two a year right now. And then we'll publish a newsletter on there. And I worked with a content marketing person because I have ideas and she's helped me flesh out some articles and we'll start to publish those as blogs and I'll put those on LinkedIn as well. Amazing. Well, you know, we're in a new year and you know, one question that I thought I'd ask is, are there any industry trends that you're tracking and excited about this year? Well, at the macro level, I think what I look at is, I mean, the reason I'm doing what I do right now is if I look back at, you know, advent of Sarbanes-Oxley and the strain that I put on going public for relatively small companies, you know, private equity has really filled that void in a big way. And so more and more, I think you see companies, I used to say they're cats and their dogs, right? They're strategics and their financials. But now there are more and more, I'll call them cat dogs. So they're strategic companies that have a financial sponsor. So they're owned or heavily invested by private equity firms. So in some ways, you've got the best of both out there. So typically, they'll buy a platform company, and they'll do two to three or four or however many add-ons, and then they run their cycle, and they'll sell it. So I think understanding how you know a B2B SaaS company in that 5 to 25, where they fit, you know, could they potentially be a platform company, or would they potentially be an add-on? And then the other thing is that more and more private equity firms, the buyers from private equity firms are actually other private equity. So private equity to private equity, I believe this last year were the majority of the deals, which is interesting. The other thing I think I might've mentioned it earlier too, is it's that innovation is being spun out of co-working spaces. So I think more than ever, there are a lot of companies that aren't successful spun out of those co-working spaces more than ever. Yeah. I mean, bricks and mortar isn't necessarily an indicator of a company's size or positioning anymore. So many companies are geo-dispersed today. Now, in San Francisco, I've seen a trend increasingly of you know, maybe the C-suite sitting in the Bay Area, but the rest of the business really being geo-dispersed all over the country or even all over the world. Yeah. There are wins for the employer and for the employees as well. It's how employees want to work and the tools have made it happen. So yeah, it's fascinating. I guess, I mean, just relating to that, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on the question of geodispersion of a team and how that might impact the company's prospects from an M&A perspective. Let's say that a company has an offshore development team. How do you think that that impacts a buyer's appetite with respect to the acquisition or the multiples associated with that acquisition price? 
Well, it's a good question. I mean, on the one hand, it adds another level of complexity. One of the questions would be, are these employees of the company or are they a part of, you know, an offshore entity that and you effectively rent a team of people? The flip side is if the acquirer has high development costs, wherever it might be, it could potentially be a way for the acquirer to reduce their costs. So part of it depends on how you position it. But it definitely is an opportunity for a company if they've got the right mindset, right? If it's a traditional company that has no appetite to manage offshore resources, then it's going to work against you. But if it's someone that's interested in reducing their development costs or accelerating their backlog of product functionality, if they can accelerate their roadmap, usually that's a positive for every software company, right? You can't get enough done. So if acquiring this company and expanding that team can accelerate their roadmap, it can be painted as a positive. But often just comes down to people's comfort level with it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's clear that this trend is here to stay. And so I guess another way to look at it is, you know, if companies are increasingly doing it and that's where innovation is happening or how innovation is happening and values being accreted, then, you know, clearly this is something that acquires are going to have to become comfortable with one way or the other. Yeah, I would agree. To stay competitive, I think they'll have to be. Yeah. Are there any trends that are happening that you're less excited about? Well, I mean, I have a concern at the macro level, you know, just the deficit space. I just, you know, we've been in a long bull market, so those are all good things. But, you know, when you live long enough, you see enough cycles, you start to get concerned that it could change. You know, I look at, you know, this coronavirus spreading and where will that go and, you know, how much effect will that have on global economies, the global supply chain is interesting. That's different than M&A in particular, but if it affects the capital markets, then it will affect M&A, particularly in the space where I'm focused because private equity plays very, very heavy role in that space and, you know, they borrow money to do deals. So that's one thing. I'm curious to see how that plays out. Yeah, fair enough. So just taking a step back, I thought I'd ask you a couple of reflective questions. Let's go back in time to 2015 when you were starting Traction. What's a piece of advice that you would want to have given yourself at that stage, given everything that you've learned since then? You know, it actually worked out pretty well. I mean, I vetted, I talked to a lot of bankers, a lot of corp dev, and almost unanimous response I got was, you've got it. That's a good little business. I guess the probably the one, not having been a traditional banker, not actually run the traditional processes, I probably would have almost like phone a friend that was a banker. I applied traditional enterprise sales techniques, which actually worked really well. But there were more just kind of basic nuisance back office stuff that I had to put in place on the fly. That all worked well now, but you know that's one of the things I from the first time around. The good news was the model itself was sound, probably even better than I thought it would be to move into this space. But that was a bit of a leap of faith. Amazing. And then if you could recommend a book to a business owner that's considering an exit or a significant fundraise, what would it be? You know, it's a good question. I've actually been working so hard. Seriously, I don't know. I've read any new business books in the last few years. I've been so saturated with it. I mean, a couple of things I'd throw out there are some points that I've learned from some of the books I read over the years. I mean, one was like strategic selling, complex sales process, you know, being able to identify who has to say yes, whose no can kill it, and whose yes actually makes the deal go through. I mean, particularly when you're selling to a strategic, I think that's critically important to be able to find who those people are. Yeah, I mean, that's the one piece of advice I'd have, particularly for some of the smaller companies that can't afford an M&A advisor. I try to coach them on the process. Amazing. Well, Lowell, I would like to thank you for joining us today on the Pencils Down podcast. Really look forward to having you back soon. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. 
That's it for today. Special thanks to Lowell Ricklefs and Traction Advising. You can rate and review pencils down on Apple Podcasts. Got a question for us? Send us an email at pencilsdown at finalis.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Pencils Down on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. 